Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check us out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Also, you can email me, um, Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. I also want to let you know if you miss a show or you come in the middle, all the shows are archived. Check them out on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. And I just want to thank you guys for all your support and sharing. Um, I'm happy that you guys are getting the giveaways. It is not a scam. I know there's a lot of stuff on the Internet saying, you know, hey, you won a prize. If you see it from me, most likely it's for real. I always ask people to post when they get them so that people know that, you know, okay, she really did send it. Um, they can't post the e- e-gift cards that I send, but books that I send or other items, I do try to get people to post because I do want you to know that is legitimate. And um, I, I get uh, signed books, and those are really precious. So um, I think that's really special for people to see that you got it. Well, this morning, as you know, a historian – a historian of historians, really. I was just telling him his book has so many anecdotes. I mean, we, we would need like two or three shows to talk about everything in his book. Um, but this is not his first book. But the book we're going to be talking about today is called The Boss of the Grit, The Life of James H. Williams and the Red Caps of Grand Central Terminal. Yes, the Red Caps. I'm sure you guys see the Red Caps now. When you go to 30th Street, if you're in Philadelphia, you might get them to carry your luggage. Um, if you're in D.C. or New York, you know. But did you know the history of the Red Caps? This man delved deep into the history and to one of the leaders of the Red Caps. Good morning, Eric K. Washington. Good morning, Joy. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for writing this book. I, like I said, I think people really will appreciate knowing all these little stories and getting a different perspective on New York on this black man at the time who I was just thinking right before I, I saw your call come in, I was like, he would have been a CEO of like a fortune 500 company if given the opportunity. <laughs> That's how I feel. Yes. Like seriously, indeed. you know, all the organizing he did and things like that, you know, okay, but I, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I, I don't, I, <laughs> I'm excited here. I just want to let the people know that um, you're a bundled community scholar of Columbia university as well. Um, so where did this history bug hit you? Like, when did it hit you? Well, it hit me in actually 2013, uh, or uh, just approaching it. Um, Grand Central Terminal in New York City was about to celebrate its uh, centennial. Uh, so it's going to be 100 years old. And uh, I also am a licensed tour guide, and I was asked if I would give a tour of Grand Central Terminal. It's not really my beat. I mostly focus on Upper Manhattan, 
Um, mm-hmm. But they were kind of in a bind, the Municipal Art Society that had the uh, that won the sort of concession to run the tours uh, because their training program had been sabotaged uh, in, in part by Hurricane Sandy. So a lot of the trainees couldn't get Oh, in wow, okay. And I lived in the city and, you know, the subways were working. So I thought, you know, what the heck. Um, so I wanted to write something about Grand Central, and I did not want to write about architecture because everyone would be focusing on that. And I knew mm. that uh, African Americans had a long history with the railroad. I think at that point um, I thought Pullman Porters and the Red Caps were just the same thing. And very quickly I learned that they were different. So, and for people who don't know, because you know, we're generations away from this kind of occupation, um, Pullman porters or sleeping car porters, they, they rode the rails. Uh, the red caps worked the stations. Um, mm-hmm. But what they had in common was that they were chiefly African-American men. Um, and the fellow, I, I didn't realize I was hitting pay dirt because Grand Central Terminal uh, was influential to railroad stations across the nation. So whatever was happening there, other railroad stations were trying to emulate. Kind of like Central mm-hmm. Park, um, great parks uh, across the, the continent were trying to emulate what they were doing there. So mm-hmm. um, he was the first African-American to integrate what had been an all-white uh, workforce that had been started in 1895. And that didn't last very long. Uh, so eight years later, in 1903, James H. Williams uh, was hired, and then within a year, it became entirely black. So I think this was an orchestrated uh, move by the, the management of, of the New York Central line, uh, so that because this was the lowest echelon really of of workers in the, in in the station, and the whites who had originally been hired to do this, uh, one of the requirements is that they have language skills uh, because it was New York City, and you have a polyglot population that's coming through the station, and it, was, mm, of course, it needed yeah. to be able to, to greet people. Uh, so that kind of fell by the wayside. But if you've got language skills and you're white, um, and you're carrying other people's bags, you're not going to be gruntled. <laughs> you're going to be disgruntled in a very short period of time, <laughs> and you can get another job. And, and so I... I did not come across any kind of protest when he was hired, which would have been not atypical when a, a, a black person integrates a white environment, uh, which suggests to me that this was an orchestrated move and that all of those white employees were able to get other jobs elsewhere, either in the station or somewhere else. So he Eric, became the first. Let me, and let then, me, Eric, let me, mm-hmm. let me just stop you for a second here. Let's go back sure. a little bit. So, so you got this bug from in 2013. We're now in 2020. I think yeah. the book came out 2019. I saw that you went to France uh, to uh, work on the book. How did that happen? Uh, yes. So I was, uh, as my a lot of my research was coming together. I kind of need to be need to be away from the city from all the hubbub. And so it was just it was a fellowship, a resident. Um, a residency in, in uh, the south of France uh, for creatives, and I was accepted, and I took a month's time, and that really helped me to, I didn't do as much research there as basically kind of organizing a lot of the research that I had already done um, during my Leon Levy Fellowship in New York uh, and through the resources of uh, Columbia University um, as a, a bundle scholar. So it was a month that was like, it was kind of a necessary uh, downtime in the sense that 
you know, I was not being overstimulated by traffic and my refrigerator mm-hmm. and phone calls. Uh, and it right, enabled right. me to pull, pull together a lot of the research that I had already amassed and organized it. I, I understand you got to um, contact his great-grandson. Um, how did that connection happen? Did you look up his phone oh, number on the yes. phone? <laughs> or, 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 no. It was it was interesting because um, another writer uh, um, who's now a friend, um, she was a journalist, and she was working on a lot of her beat was the New York City Fire Department, and she was had been working on a book on the century long struggle to integrate New York's bravest, and we had a conversation um, because she was trying to get a sense of what Harlem was like when the first black fire uh, Manhattan's first black fireman was hired in 1919, and his name was Wesley Williams. And as we're talking, she said, Wesley Williams' grandson is actually still around, and he's been very helpful. And um, she knew that Wesley's father had been like a red cap, and I, I'm like, a, a red, I mean, I'm working on something about red caps. And I didn't, I put two and two together, and I got four. So I was like, Wesley Williams, James H. Williams. And so she put me in oh touch my with God, Wesley's so amazing. grandson, who is James's great grandson. Um, so this was fantastic. And at Charles Ford Williams um, gave me really carte blanche to uh, look at all the photos. He became sort of the family uh, uh, repository for for things historic. So he had tons of photos, uh, many of which he could identify, but many more of which he could not. And so my research helped to identify a lot of these photos like, oh, James Williams' daughter, Gertrude, in this picture, she's with uh, this fellow who used to hang out with uh, the actress Florence Mills' entourage and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So he was really a boon in terms of my research because most of this stuff was not found in archives. You know, things were kind of scattered. Yeah, definitely. He seemed like a private kind of guy. He seems kind of private um, based on um, just what I was just grabbing at. But let's talk to the audience and let them know that when I I was talking uh, that he could be a CEO um, of a Fortune 500 company, the reason I say that uh, is with good cause because in your book you talk about him being over more than 300 men uh, Mm. working the station, organizing them, um, training them, also working with other train stations. Like you said, it was like a model station type of thing. But beyond that, he was a leader in other places where he was a leader with the Black Elk. Talk to the audience about that. Right. So, you know, the you know, fraternal organizations like the Elks and, and other fraternal organizations, these have been historically really, really important for the black community uh, as it was growing and spreading across the country. Um, they often raise money for, um, for different philanthropic, philanthropic causes, um, be it for, you know, for orphanages or for the war effort. Um, so he was uh, uh, an officer in um, the Manhattan Lodge Number no. 45, uh, which was this first, uh, I think it was the first of the Elks, Black Elks in Manhattan, and it grew very, very quickly, and it was mostly Harlem-based. Um, and he organized, uh, he and uh, his associate, 
uh, Sam Jesse Battle <laughs> were on the um, the uh, uh, what was it called the the committee that kind of organized like uh, got got the the caterers in line and, and hired the musicians and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. That man I just uh, mentioned was his assistant who became New York City's first black police officer <laughs> uh, while he was studying at the Red Cap um, and passed it in, in 1911. So he had his hand in all of these kinds of things, and the Elks, as they say, were, were, were really critical to the growth of um, uh, uh, the black community and, and, and were the center of a lot of uh, social activities of, of, of the black community. Now, he also organized the Red Caps, not just in terms of their training and development as Red Caps, but um, development of the baseball team and a basketball team. Yeah. What in the world? Uh, I was was like, wow, this guy. Go ahead. Tell him about that. Well, you you think think about it this way. I mean, all of us who were in junior high school, high school, we probably had a school, you know, uh, basketball, football, running team, that sort of thing. It represent it, it helps you to express yourself as an athlete or or a creative person, maybe a, a school orchestra or whatever. But also represents the institution that you are part of. And there was no difference there. But one of the things that was unique. So he he starts an orchestra uh, because a lot of these red caps are professional uh, quality musicians. Um, mm-hmm. It does a couple of things. It lifts up the morale because this is a grunt job, and I wasn't interested in celebrating the job, but I was interested in celebrating, this, you know, the the spirit of the valor of the men who who have to perform this. Um, many of whom are um, college students, and he was very particular about not exclusively, but but he hired particularly a lot of young black college students uh, who had various skills, and a lot of them were. Um, were musicians, so he puts together this orchestra. It not only represents See, that right there Central Terminal. A myth, Eric. Eric, that dispels a myth right there that these men were going to college. You know, a lot of people might have assumed, like, oh, yes. they don't have any educational um, background, so that's why they're taking this job. Um, you know, this is probably all they could get no, they type had of no thing. But that, was, but that was not the reason um, that they were working that job. It's because they were black people in America. Exactly. And this, is a, this was actually um, a, a good job to make money and help them pay for college based on, uh, on, on your book's uh, reading. Go ahead. Sorry, you were uh, going to talk some more. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Right. <laughs> and I'm glad, I'm glad you pointed, emphasized that because it was not uncommon to see headlines. I mean, for many, it was like a novelty to see that these men who were um, – famously overqualified for this job, and you might occasionally see headlines like, PhD carries your bags. But they were relegated to these jobs by dint of being black, um, so they didn't have the options that uh, you know, young white college men would have had in terms of job opportunities. Um, but mm-hmm. the orchestra thing, I think, um, it, it lifted the morale, but it also made them autonomous, because while they performed often at the station, but they also performed at places like um, the famous San Gennaro Festival down in Little Italy uh, that happened every year, or um, they could hire themselves out. So this, giving them this kind of autonomy helped them economically and also professionally because they could make sort of their own names. Um, they had a baseball team, and they were competitive um, among you know, the Negro League players, um, particularly during uh, the First World War around 1918 when he, when he pulls them together. Um, he organizes a basketball team 
Um, and so all of these things are kind of contributing to community building uh, because they bring people together. Um, people are able to kind of show their chops in whichever particular athletic or musical field that they have. Um, and one of the important things that he organized was a mutual aid society among the Red Caps. Uh, and this was very important. He did this early on when he became mm, the chief yeah. um, because they were not insured. They were vulnerable. And uh, Grand Central Terminal, you know, was being built over the old Grand Central Station and still functioning, you know, with, with Swiss watch precision. Uh, but you can imagine with all these detours along the way, and here, you know, they're having to carry people's bags and walking along the platforms. There were casualties. Uh, Williams' own daughter was in the hospital, um, which was right next door to Grand Central, and they were not insured. So he organizes a mutual uh, aid society where you would, uh, everyone would contribute something, and this way it would um, uh, help pay for the cost of, say, a funeral or um, uh, sick leave um, or someone's wife is pregnant. Or it's uh, you know, hard times. Uh, so yeah. this was now a, you just a true act of leadership. Daughter. You, you just mentioned his daughter. Now, is this a yes. young daughter? She passed away. She was uh, sick right. for about a year, nine, you mentioned uh, Dor- in the book. Right, uh, Doris. So uh, we didn't get to know her uh, as, 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 as an adult. And uh, she had had an affliction, you know, I think that was, uh, I don't know if it was congenital, but from, from, from her early years. Um, and it was through... Uh, things like this mutual aid society that would, I'm sure, that help to defray the costs of of of, um, of the funeral, um, which are real costs for for, for for real people. Yeah. Now, the earlier conversation, I'm going to go back to this, where you met your friend and you were talking, and she's doing a study about black firefighters. His son was the first black firefighter in Manhattan. Tell the audience about his right. son. He was absolutely amazing. Yeah, so Wesley Williams, uh, he's born in 1897, uh, and he, is, uh, he passes the test. I think, there was, uh, I think the figure was uh, 1,700 applicants. He's the only black applicant, and he's the only one who scores of 1,700 men 100% on the physical um, yeah. examination. Go he's Wesley. this bodybuilder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a teetotaler didn't didn't drink, um, didn't smoke. Uh, we would call them health nuts today. I guess maybe health nuts is already old-fashioned, but, um, but he was like one of the earliest of the health nuts. Um, and he worked at when he got hired, all the men tried to quit. The captain of the station did quit. Um, the commissioner would not let the other men quit. They had to stick around for a year, but they ostracized him. And so when he went upstairs, they went downstairs and vice versa. They gave him a bed by the toilet. Um, they tried to kill him. You know, oh, my God. Yeah. They tried to kill him. And they tried. Said. Like, tell him about yeah. that. That's crazy. Fighting a fire. There was a fire. Uh, he was stationed on Broom Street in the, what's now sort of the Little Italy, Chinatown area of, of lower Manhattan. And there was a fire. Um, and they all went out there. And he's like, you know, goes in and... As they came out, they left him in there in the smoke. And uh, one of the fire officers came at, to the scene, and um, he was trying to account for all the men. And he was on Wesley's side. Um, and they said, "Oh, he's still there. You know, you know let's, uh, that's too bad." And out of the smoke, as in a movie, comes Wesley, <laughs> and he survived it. That's a um, movie. 
that is a movie scene, okay, yeah. Eric? Oh my God, I can totally exactly. see. This is a, a jump. This is a break off a TV show about Wesley. Um, nothing to do with his father, but obviously his father, I'm sure, was a great influence. One other, another crazy story in there: the Prince Henry of Prussia story. Oh, okay, yes. talk about yeah, Prince 19, Henry. Oh, yeah, 1902, uh, Prince, Prince uh, Henry of, of Prussia, he's making this goodwill tour of the United States, and he starts in New York. And, of course, anybody with even – and it's all by railroad, you know. Anybody with the slightest German extraction is doing their German pride thing from the later hosen to whatever, you know, and they're rushing down to the station to meet him. And what they don't know um, is that the prince is really like into black music, and at the time for him, that's spirituals, because some 30 years later, when he was a little boy in his little palace <laughs> over in Prussia, the Fisk Jubilee Singers have their world tour in 1871. I could not believe that. Uh, I could not yes. believe that. That was so crazy. And, yeah, and he's smitten, and he wants to hear black music, and so he meets the the Fisk Jubilee Singers when he gets to Nashville, and one of the singers he still remembers. She's I think because the, the cast has sort of changed, but one of them is still there from the original. And, um, and he's thrilled. When he comes back to New York, he's brought to Marshall's uh, down on 53rd Street, which was this famous um, uh, hotel cabaret. Um, so he's the new music that's coming up, you know, ragtime. Um, and he goes back because he's really taken by this uh, – uh, Williams had worked for the, the florist, uh, Charles Thorley. He's, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he was one of the most famous florists of the Gilded Age, who um, a lot of people didn't, don't know. He was uh, also well-known for hiring black staff um, and contributing to black causes. And so he had done this big, um, he had done the, the floral decor for uh, this big reception for the print at Madison Square Garden. And... Um, he left, and he left the guy in charge to do it. Uh, I'm, I'm already forgetting his name, but he was one of the black workers. Coming. And the prince Coming wasn't was so impressed. Coming, yes, thank I you. I think it was coming. So mm-hmm. the prince wasn't mm-hmm. so in, impressed with the reception because he gets receptions all the time. But he stopped before leaving early. You know, the singers were like, oh, my gosh, she's walking out. <laughs> you know? um, but before <laughs> he leaves, he's like, he takes in the flowers. He says, who did this? And... Everyone looks for Thorley, and Thorley's not there, but the guy who actually did the work, Cummings, was there. And he hires Cummings and when Cummings he does his tour and he comes man. back to New York. Cummings was a black man, and he takes Cummings to be his floral director on the ship, the Deutschland, back to Germany. Um, and then he sends, uh, pay, you know, pays Cummings' way back home. He gives him a diamond-studded watch, um, you know, Letters about so Cummings becomes sort of famous um, and enters the business on his own uh, for a while the floral business. So these kind of connections were also things that that Williams um, was able to kind of keep track of. He was well known for knowing almost anybody there was to know in New York City, black or white, and he was able to sort of weave these connections, these networks together for the betterment of. Um, oh, the uplift was, was this was the you know the the urgent theme of the of the time of his people, um, and so that yes that he was, definitely uh, was involved a story. in a lot of things yeah he was definitely involved in supporting a lot of um, he supported the YMCA um, different 
building to the, that's why he got the red caps together donating money he he helped them with getting bonds i mean he just like i said he was if given an opportunity i i definitely could see and he knew all these superstars that you talk about in, in the book and in, in yes. pictures um it, it's just really yeah, it amazing. was said you were not a big shot unless unless he recognized you <laughs> Even see you look at there yeah. look at there i mean I, I saw a picture with him and Joe Lewis, I think it was. They were walking. Um, right. And he looked so small. I, in the pictures that I saw, I thought, oh, but this guy looks tall. But then you see him next to Joe Lewis, and I'm like, oh, wow, okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, Joy, but, um, I'm thrilled now because uh, he was the, one of the last students of this school, this grammar school, of uh, the racial caste school that was discontinued in 1894. And he would have been one of the last uh, in the classes, but the building is still there in uh, the neighborhood of Chelsea today, and I'm actually spearheading a campaign to get it landmarked. And things, as a, as as I speak, are looking rather po- positive. Nothing's on paper yet, um, but that's a ni- it's a beautiful connection that this works um, works out to Williams and others who graduated from there and and the world that he had been attached to um, during during that period during the late 19th century. So, well, now, what are you working on next? Uh, what I heard you're right, maybe writing like a group biography um, of a multiple New Yorkers. Yeah. Is that true? Or? I'm, I'm working on a couple of things. One is a, a biography of Richard Huey, who is a Broadway actor, restaurateur, who is in Boss of the Grips. Um, he gets hired by Williams. Uh, Williams doesn't want to hire him, he, uh, he says, but, but he has a letter of recommendation from W.E.B. Du Bois, <laughs> so that kind of thing. Oh, that's uh, yes. Oh, my again. God. Like, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but also, uh, I think uh, I'm starting on a group biography of people who are associated educators and students of this school that I just mentioned, Colored School Number, seven, num- number, colored school number 4 on West 17th Street that Williams attended um, because there's just this fantastic crew of people who came in and out of those doors there. Um, wow. So I've got that, my, that's gonna be, you know, my, my hands full. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Like uh, uh, people, we can't even talk. I mean, there's stuff about Roosevelt in here that I would love to talk, but we're coming down to our time. Eric, I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book. Um, so Wonderful. Uh, where can people follow you on social media? Like, you, I know you have uh, your website, uh, but where, what's your uh, hook again on social media, like Twitter, Instagram? I'm on Twitter, E.K. Wash, at E.K. Washington. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Eric K. Washington. Um, and so I'm, I'm easy to find there. I, 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 my Instagram is mostly photos, but there's a lot of texted things. I have two sites on Instagram, Eric K. Washington, and also tagging in the past, uh, which is a lot of sort of local history uh, nuggets. I have one last question for you, Eric. If you could have a sure. superpower, what would it be? Oh, gosh, that was the question I, I'm always afraid of. Um, I think it would be able to zip back into time for like 10 minutes, just the time to do a quick interview with somebody fantastic who I've been researching. <laughs> 10 minutes, um, 10 minutes. But I don't want to get stuck okay. there. <laughs> but, okay, right. Okay, so you gotta you gotta come going there and coming back. That's important. <laughs> right, I, it has to be round trip. <laughs> Superpower. Round trip. Look at there. All right, Eric. It was really a pleasure talking to you this morning. I wish you so much luck. It with was the a next pleasure. Project. Thank you for maybe, inviting maybe me. Maybe we'll talk again. 
uh, about your next book. I, I would love to probably have you back on. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, have talk a great to you weekend. later. Bye-bye. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Just got off the phone with historian Eric K. Washington. I'm going to be giving away some copies of his book, Boss of the Grips, The Life of James H. Williams, and The Red Top of Grand Central. Um, follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. I'm going to be on Instagram. As soon as I get off the phone here, we're going to be talking about migraines with the Migraine Diva. So you want to go to my Instagram account if you want to follow that. It's a live uh, video chat with her. Um, again, Saturdays with Joy Keys. That's uh, uh, my hook on Instagram. The show's on iTunes, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. You guys have a great weekend, and I may see you on Instagram. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs>